Good morning. An almost happy 2019. We're almost there, not quite, but we're, we're getting close. Welcome. We're very glad you could be here and join us today. Well, it's one of the worst events in all of human history. And before it had even run its course, people were saying we need to write down everything that is happening. It was World War II, or just before World War II, and the, the Holocaust was happening, this Jewish Holocaust. And every Jew was saying to each other this mantra, write it all down. And as they were going through the death camps and the ghettos in Germany, they were finding lots of journals and diaries that had been written about what had been happening during that time. Because at the end of it all, six million Jews had been annihilated. Now, with all the books that have been written, and with all the movies that have been made, with the museums that have been built, as a matter of fact, some of the crematoriums in those death camps were left standing so that people wouldn't forget. With all of those things happening, how could anyone forget such a horrific time in history? Or could they forget? There was a survey that went out in 2013, and it went out to uh, 53,000 people, 101 different countries, all adults, asking some basic, basic questions about the Holocaust. And of those 53,000 people, only 54% said they had ever heard of the Holocaust. And of those 54%, only one-third said that, actually one-third said it was either a myth or it had been greatly exaggerated. You see, we take for granted something that is as discussed and talked about as the Holocaust. It can become very commonplace. And when something like that becomes commonplace, the details and facts around it can be either misremembered or they can be forgotten altogether. This morning we're talking about this subject of communion. And for those of us who have been taking it for a while, for a very long time, my concern is that it can become very commonplace. And because of that, a lot of the details around it can be misremembered. And my prayer is that it never becomes forgotten as to why it is we're taking communion. I think for a lot of us, it can become very rote. We do it again and again. It's this thing that some of us feel is almost just sort of tacked into the end of the service or sometime during the service. And then what am I supposed to be doing anyway? Am I supposed to be uh, performing kind of a spiritual autopsy on myself? Am I supposed to be feeling guilty going in? Was there something I was supposed to do beforehand? Was I supposed to talk to somebody and then not take it if everything isn't completely cleared up? As the music starts, what should be the meditations of my heart and mind? For some of us, maybe it's pictures of uh, scenes from the Passion of the Christ. For other of us, we're desperately trying to remember the sins that maybe we had committed this morning or whenever the last sin was. For me, it was probably about 15 minutes ago, if that. But what should the meditations of my heart be? What should be on my mind when I'm doing this serious, introspective look before we take communion. Regardless of what may be on your mind as we head into communion, there's a passage 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that gives me some pretty serious pause, and I want to read it for you. It's uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 28 through 30. And there uh, the Apostle Paul writes, A person should examine himself first, and in this way let him eat the bread and drink of the cup. For the one who eats and drinks without careful regard for the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and quite a few are dead. So that begs the question, well, what should be on my heart and mind as we go into this act of communion? What is this worthy or unworthy manner that's being discussed? Because the last thing I want to do is send myself to an early grave because I'm not doing communion right. The text we'll be looking at today is in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. We'll be in and out of that passage. And in that, we're going to look at three responses to communion, three responses to the act of communion. But before we get into that, I actually want to, I want to do a little bit of a history lesson this morning. I want to work through four different views of communion. Because frankly, this is something the church has been struggling with for quite a while, ever since Jesus said the words, this is my body, this is my blood, the church has been figuring, trying to figure out, well, what does that mean? What does he mean when he says, this is my body, this is my blood? Clearly, he didn't do surgery on himself. He didn't cut off part of his flesh. He didn't let blood run into a cup. So what did Jesus mean when he said, this is my body? So let's walk through briefly um, the different positions that the church has held uh, in this act of communion. If we step back to about the first thousand years of the church, there was really only one church. There weren't denominations um, until you get to the year 1054 where the, the Greek Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church split. By the way, the word Catholic simply means universal. In the beginning, it wasn't the, the Roman Catholic Church. It was the Catholic Church. As time went on, the, the Catholic Church began to uh, catechize or write out what they believed was happening during communion. Because, again, they're struggling with this question, what did Jesus mean when he said, this is my body? So they came up, so this is one of those words I learned in seminary, right? I had to pay a lot of money to go to seminary. So I just like to throw those words out there every now and then that I had to learn in seminary. The Catholic view, the Roman Catholic view, is this view of transubstantiation. Now, well, what does that mean? So it's when the actual substance of bread and wine change to Christ's body and blood. Now, that happens as the priest is praying over it. They believe it then changes into the body and blood of Christ. Now, this change is undetectable. In other words, you wouldn't taste it, you wouldn't see it, you wouldn't smell it, but nonetheless... They would say that as the priest prays over it, blesses it, it actually becomes the body and blood of Christ. Now, the issue we would take with that is it's probably too literal. It seems to be too literal a way of taking what it is Christ is saying. In the book of John, for example, uh, Jesus is going to say, I am the vine. He's going to say, I am the door. But we don't take those things literally. He's uh, speaking metaphorically about himself, is explaining about his purposes. So that seems like too literal a view. So fast forward to the year 1500. 
some folks come on the scene that just cannot buy this whole transubstantiation thing. And about 1500 is when the Protestant Reformation happens. And the three big dogs of the Reformation, I'm calling them the three big, notice Calvin had a hipster beard before it was ever cool. <laughs> Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli. For the three of these men, communion was of the utmost importance in the act of worship. It was this moment that was utterly holy, and they took it very, very seriously. So many of their discussions was around communion. What is it? What does it mean? What is it that we're doing in the act of communion? So let's start out with this first guy, Martin Luther, who instituted the Lutheran view of communion, and he held this view called consubstantiation, which isn't quite transubstantiation, it's something different. And in consubstantiation, Luther would say that Christ's body and blood are found in, with, and under the bread and wine. Well, what does that mean? Again, they're struggling with the question. And Luther would use this illustration. He said, if you were to take a piece of iron and you put it in a hot enough fire you would see it getting hot. As a matter of fact, it would probably start to glow and things. However, it is still iron. The iron doesn't lose its ironness. And this is the same way he would describe the way Christ acts upon communion. It's like he's sort of heating it up. Now, again, this is undetectable. You wouldn't detect the presence of Christ in the elements of communion. Now, again, I think the problem with this is it's taking very literally this idea of the elements, the, the bread, and in our case, the juice, becoming the body of Christ. But he's not the only one struggling through this, because also John Calvin's going to espouse a view called the spiritual view. John Calvin uh, is credited with starting the Presbyterian denomination, and he said, well, I don't buy the transubstantiation. Too literal, and he would say the same thing about Luther's view, consubstantiation. So he came up with something called the spiritual view. He would say that Christ is present spiritually in the taking of the elements. Now, just remember for a moment how Christ's ministry on earth ended, right? He ascended his whole body, all of Jesus ascended into heaven at the end of his ministry on earth, his physical ministry. So for that reason, Calvin said, well, Jesus' body can't be in the elements because Jesus is in heaven. How, how is he going to be all over the place every time a church takes communion if he's in the blood, if, he, if he's in the, the wine and the bread? So he espoused this thing called the spiritual view. Spiritually, he's in it. And by taking it, it confers grace upon those uh, who partake. Now, the problem with that is that Scripture does not mention anything about a special grace upon partakers. That requires faith. That requires belief in the work of Christ to receive the grace that's available. It, it, it can't be received by simply taking the juice and the bread. So that was Calvin's view. And then there was another view, Ulrich Zwingli. And this is the view that most Baptists and uh, those who attend Bible churches would follow. It's called the memorial view. 
And in that, it's a remembrance and a proclamation of Christ's death. And I, I believe this is the strongest of the four. This is why I'm a preacher in a Baptist church. Um, however, I don't think this view is complete without its problems as well. Because when I look at 1 Corinthians 11, and I look at this stark warning that Paul is giving that church in Corinth, if it's just a memorial, why is it people are dying, going to early graves, because it is that they're getting it wrong? So I would like to suggest, when it comes to the act of communion, that there is this element of mystery to it. You know, the scriptures give me everything I need to know about God. They give me everything I need to know about communion. But you know what? They don't give me everything. And I never want to put God in a box. I never want to think that I've completely got this thing figured it out. And there have been scads of theologies written. I've got volumes in my office written about God. However, we're never going to get all of it. Not all of God is in the Bible. It's what we need to know. It's sufficient, but it's not everything. So I'm going to agree with Calvin in what he said about communion being this divine mystery. I believe there's an element of mystery to it. Uh, in many churches, they refer to baptism and communion as sacraments. We refer to them as ordinances. But that word sacrament, this Latin word sacramentum, has with it the idea of mystery, that there is a mystery. And for, the, for years, the church recognized that there was mystery in communion. So those are four views I wanted to talk through. And I would like to turn our attention now back to this passage in 1 Corinthians uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to talk about now these three responses to communion. Something to help us put our hearts and minds, I believe, where the scriptures are pointing us when we enter into the act of communion. So we start there in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 23. And it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul states... Uh, here in verse 23, that he initially taught the Corinthians what they are to be doing in the act of communion. And very plainly, Christ says, do this in remembrance of me. First, in regard to his body that he says is for you. Now, let's just, let's just think about that for a minute. That's one of those short phrases that's what you call pregnant with meaning. Everything that Christ did, he's saying, I did it for you. Now, what did he do? We're right here on the heels of Christmas where we celebrate Christ coming to earth. Until we fully understand, until we can be in heaven and see how amazing and glorious it is, we're not going to fully understand what Christ gave up when he came to earth. Not only did he just come to earth, but he came as an infant, a helpless infant Needing things like diaper changes, needing things like feedings, unable to do these things for himself, still the master and creator of the universe. 
And then what did he do for us? He took on every sin that would ever be committed by mankind. Everything, every sin was pinned straight to him as though he was the one that had committed it and not you and I. That's what Jesus did for us. And he took the torture of the cross to die for our sins. In Chuck Swindoll's book, The Tale of the Tardy Ox Cart, he tells this story about a young woman named Monica that lives in a Kenyan village. She's about eight years old, and she was running one day and accidentally fell into this pit and broke her leg. There was a woman that lived in that village named Mama Nieri. She was like a village elder that saw what happened, and she ran over there and jumped in the pit after Monica had fallen in it. Unbeknownst to either of them that in this pit was a black mamba. It's the most poisonous snake in Africa. And the snake proceeds to bite first Mama Nieri and then bites the young woman, Monica. They're both taken to a mission hospital. Unfortunately, the older woman, Mama Nieri, passes away. She dies from the snake bite. And then the nurse comes to the young woman, Monica, and explains to her why the snake bite didn't kill her. She said, you see, when that mamba bit the older woman, all of the poison and the venom went into her, so when you were bitten, you weren't killed. You see, this is what Christ did for us. He took all the poison. He took all the wrath and the punishment that you and I deserved on himself by taking on the sin of the world. That's what he did. This is what we're remembering. This is what he did for us. By the way, that gift of salvation is so easy to receive. We receive it through faith. It's simply by believing in the person of Jesus Christ that he's fully God, fully man, believing that he, in his sacrifice, in his death on the cross, paid for our sins. By trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, this is how you gain salvation. And we remember that in this act of communion. It's this physical act of something that happened. If we were ever to all take a trip to Hawaii, wouldn't that be nice? I'll just take a trip to Hawaii. And visit the USS Arizona Memorial there in Pearl Harbor, you would see that this is a, a physical monument that's, that's been left there. It's been, it's been built there. So we don't forget about all these people that died in that bombing on December 7th, 1941. That's similar to communion. It's this physical memorial, this physical act that we participate in to remember what it was Jesus has done for, for us. So in the act of communion, part of your thoughts should be remembering Christ, remembering what he did, not becoming so comfortable and familiar with that that it ceases to have the impact on you that it needs to have on all of us all the time and what he did for us. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to talk about another meditation that should occupy us during communion. And we catch it in uh, chapter 11 down at verse 27. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, the body there is to speak of 
the body of Christ, the, the church. Discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So, this is heavy. This is obviously an important part of the act. Because look at this warning that comes along then uh, in verse 29. It says, you can eat and drink judgment on yourself. Then if you continue on to verse 30, Paul makes a statement. I read this earlier. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and quite a few are dead. So then how do we avoid what's described in verse 27, this unworthy manner in which you can take the, uh, the communion, the elements, the bread and the wine. See, Paul's brought this subject up actually more fully in verses 17 through 21 as far as what has been going on and what he has learned about this church in Corinth. And whenever they would meet together, these churches would have what we kind of consider like a modern-day potluck dinner. They called it an agape meal. Agape means love, a love meal or a love feast. And they would get together, but everybody would bring their own food, right? In potlucks today, you bring something to share. Not so then. You'd bring your own meal. And it turns out that the wealthy members of the church were bringing these really nice meals, right? They were bringing their lobster and shrimp scampi. But the poor people were, you know, they were cooking up ramen noodles. They were just bringing something much more meager. I actually like ramen noodles. But in any case, they had a meal that didn't even begin to compare with what these more wealthy people had. It was though these wealthy people were were flaunting what it was they had in front of these poorer people who sometimes didn't even have anything to eat. So then there was a self-indulgence happening. So having said that, we pick up in verse 20. And Paul says, Now when you come together at the same place, you are not really eating the Lord's Supper. For when it is time to eat, everyone proceeds with his own supper. One is hungry, and listen to this. It says another becomes drunk. Do you not have houses so that you can eat and drink, or are you trying to show contempt for the church of God by shaming those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I will not praise you for this. So this is bad stuff. I mean, for crying out loud, people are getting drunk at church. I salute you for coming this morning sober. It's, you're already a step ahead of what's going on at this church in Corinth. Way to go. Way to go. My mom reminded me, by the way, that my brother, during communion uh, at our church back at First Baptist in, in Dunbar, West Virginia, would, would take his communion cup and clink it with the friend of his next to him before they would do a little, <laughs> little toast. Tim, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry. I brought that up. But um, So we have a group of people who has absolutely no regard for the other people of faith in their community. They're gorging themselves. And Paul's diagnosis of this situation is there in verse 20. He says, you're not really eating the Lord's Supper. You see, when there are divisions among us, if there are racial divisions, if there are socioeconomic divisions, if one group of people is being treated better than another group of people here in our church, we may as well take the word church off the sign. We cease to be a church if there is something dividing us. Because, you see, it's Christ who has brought us all together. That's why if there are divisions among us, for any reason, we cease to be a church. We're more like a, we're more like a club. 
There's no room for division among God's people. This did not go unnoticed by, by the Lord. Paul goes on to say that these folks in Corinth, they've fallen under God's judgment because of how they're doing communion. And you see it at verse 29. He says, for the one who eats and drinks without careful regard for the body, eats and drinks judgment against himself. Many of you are weak and sick. Quite a few dead. But then verse 31, but if we examined ourselves, we would not be judged. I hope you can see from this passage, if you don't see anything else, the weightiness and the gravity of communion. This is a big deal. We're not going to be taking communion today. We'll be taking it in the coming weeks. But this is a big deal. Uh, and, and how people participate in these activities is important. Notice that the same weight is not ascribed to the sermon or to the music, but this act of communion. How important it is to get it right. Now, we believe the elements of communion, communion to be symbolic of the body and blood of Christ. However, I hope you can see that having a saltine and a cup of juice in your home is not the same thing as coming to church and taking communion. There's a difference. Something special happens when God's people come together and partake in this act. And it's something unlike other things. Now, notice that nowhere in this passage is Paul condemning the affluent crowd for being affluent. There's not a problem with affluency here. The problem is with how they're treating others. As a matter of fact, he boils it down simply in verse 34. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you assemble, it does not lead to judgment. I, I will give directions on other matters when I come. So divisions are being created in the church. Now I know what you're thinking. Look, Chad, I don't get it all right. But for crying out loud, I'm not showing up to church a drunk. Good for you. I, you're right. As a matter of fact, the way in which we distribute communion takes care of most of the things that we're talking about here. By the way, there's no sort of, there's no morning breakfast buffet behind the stage for the high tithers, okay? That's just so you know that's not going on. There's no special treatment here happening. However, how we treat others is important. How we look at others is important. Have we let divisions come up among us? So the unworthy manner that Paul's talking about here with these Corinthians, for the most part, has been handled in the way we take communion. We're making sure everybody gets it. We all take it together at the same time. But it does force us to ask ourselves, do we have divisions among us? In Galatians 3, uh, Paul makes the statement, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. See, Christ took down the barriers. And if we step outside this church, there's all kinds of barriers that are separating people. Financially, racially, there's all kinds of things that separate us out there. So that's why when we come in here, nothing should be separating us. We can't have divisions among us. So we do need to ask ourselves the question, how am I treating my brothers and sisters? Am I letting something come between me and someone else? I'll never forget whenever I was working in Dallas, Texas, I was interning at a, a large church there that was really close to the urban areas of Dallas. 
So it was a very mixed up congregation for, in, in just about any way you can imagine. And at 6 a.m. on Wednesdays, I would come in and I would um, work with the men's ministry. That's when we met. And every Wednesday morning, two guys would always show up first. One guy's family owned a huge media corporation. And he would come into that uh, Wednesday morning men's ministry in his $250,000 Ferrari. This thing looked like a spaceship. He said he bought that instead of the Aston Martin because he said, and I quote, it sounded sexier. Now, I, I'm just glad when my car starts, all right? <laughs> That's the way he bought his car. Great. God bless him. He sat down right beside a guy who up until about three weeks before that day had been living under a bridge. And he was not easy to get along with. He came in wearing a radio around his neck that he left turned up pretty loud. As a matter of fact, he at one point left the radio laying on the table and he walked away. And the, the other gentleman turned the radio down. And he heard it and came back to, to the table and turned it back up and walked away again. He wasn't easy to get along with. I'm not saying that the people you're sitting by aren't easy to get along with. We're humans. We've got corners and edges. It's us being around each other, being in community that knocks off those corners and those edges. But how are you treating the people around you? How is that going? Are we concerned about the people who can't be here on a Sunday? Because perhaps they're in a nursing home. Are we concerned about the people who can't get here because of transportation? There's a reason we take up an elders fund, and that's to help out other people we have here in our congregation. I love the fact that we are concerned about the financial needs of our brothers and sisters, because you know what? We have no idea when we may be in that place ourselves. I've just seen it happen too many times. People who at one time lived in the huge house and thought they had everything. I had the blessing of being over the benevolence budget at my previous church, and time and time again, I heard the same story. We had it. We had the big house. We had the cars. But today we need help. We never know when God's going to put us in that place. It's usually for our own good. But we have a concern for others. We, we need to be concerned about our brothers and sisters. So secondly, we reflect on how we treat others. This has a lot to do with being in communion, taking communion in this worthy manner that Paul is talking about. Now, I don't believe that this reflection is a spiritual autopsy, right? None of us are perfect. And I don't believe that we need to be writhing in some state of guilt when we're taking communion. However, we do need to be concerned about how we are in relationship to others. And we don't need to be flippant about how we engage uh, with others and, and in the act of communion. So first, we talked about remembering. Secondly, uh, reflecting on how we're treating others. And then uh, next, I want to move on to the next uh, one more response. And I want to look to the future. And maybe this is one of the things about communion that excites me the most. Uh, because we get a hint. Christ alludes to this future event in Matthew 26. Now, he had just walked through the instructions with the disciples at the Passover. Um, he talked about the, the meal being his body and the, uh, the, the, the wine being his blood. He's explaining all of these things to the disciples. And then we get to verse 29. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
Now, they just had communion. Now he's hinting at something else in the future. This future meal that he sees them all taking together. I think it's talked about more in Revelation chapter 19. It says, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Because you see, there's this future meal that's going to happen. This thing called the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's a meal that every believer, every Christian that has ever lived is going to be partaking in. Uh, every time we take communion, we're getting a little taste of this heavenly banquet. And who's going to be there? Every person who has ever put their trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Paul emphasizes this in verse 33. He says, So then, brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, he says, wait for each other. You see, as Christians, we are living out the kingdom right now. Now, it's here sort of, but not fully, because there's still sin in the world that we're dealing with. But we are getting a taste of it. You know, it kind of reminds me, whenever I lived back in Charleston, West Virginia, um, I, me and my friends, we'd go to the Town Center Mall. And on the third floor of the Town Center Mall was the food court. Now, if you went there right at lunchtime and walked around to the right places, you could almost get a meal without having to buy anything. Because there were people standing out in front and they had all these little samples they were giving you. And it was usually the best they had. So you would run and you'd get the sweet and sour chicken, whatever it was. But it was this little sample, this little taste of something that, that you wanted more of, a meal. That's what we see in the act of communion. It's just a foretaste. And you know what? If you have lost someone... If you have lost someone who, who had trusted Christ, you get to look forward to having a Christmas dinner with them again someday. That's why we rejoice when we take communion. Because it looks forward to a meal that we'll get to take with those people who have gone on before us. So what do we do? We rejoice over what's to come. All of this is happening when we take communion together. So these, the, these three responses then, remembering what Christ has done, reflecting on how I'm treating others, and then rejoicing over what's to come. It looks backwards, it looks at the present, and it looks at the future. And in closing, there's a short quote I want to end with. Uh, it's from a guy named Leonard, Leonard J. Vanderzee. And he's the pastor of South Bend Christian Reformed Church. And he described what the communion used to be like that he took at the Hope Rescue Mission. And uh, it, it was called Hot Dogs in Communion at the Hope Rescue Mission. And this is what he says about that day. He says, I will always think of the body of Christ now with this scene in mind. Doctors and housewives and professors in nice shoes and brightly colored sweaters shuffling to the table together with men and women who hadn't changed clothes for days or weeks. The sophisticated smell of aftershave mixed with the sharp scent of dirty socks and stale smoke. People whose lives seemed altogether 
sharing the same loaf with people whose lives were broken and tattered. We were all one body, for we all ate from the same loaf. No one left out. All God's children together taking communion. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for providing us with such a generous and loving way for us to remember what it is you have done for us. That we get to eat and drink something together to remember you, Lord, to reflect on how we're treating others. And then, God, to be encouraged, to grieve as one with has hope as we look to the future, to take part in a meal where we'll all be together for eternity. Thank you for these wonderful and precious gifts. It's in your name we pray. Amen.